Podcast. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Hello and welcome to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales, editor of Premier Christianity magazine. That's the UK's leading Christian publication. If you would like a free sample copy of our latest issue, you can go to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. But this afternoon here on Premier Christian Radio, you've joined us for The Profile, and that's where we sit down with a guest to find out more about their life, faith, and ministry. And today, I'm delighted to say that my guest on the show today is the incoming CEO of the Evangelical Alliance, Gavin Calver. Gavin succeeds Steve Clifford, who's a past guest on this show. And Gavin has worked at the EA since 2015. He was previously National Director at Youth for Christ. And Gavin is also the son of Clive Calver, who also led Youth for Christ and worked at the EA. Evangelical Alliance. So there's a family connection to delve into as well. The Evangelical Alliance is the oldest and largest evangelical unity movement in the UK. Gavin, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. So you're the head of the Evangelical Alliance. Mm. Congratulations on the new position. What is an evangelical? Well, I don't think that's too complicated. I think we believe the Bible's the inspired word of God. Let's stop changing the Bible to accommodate our culture and start changing our culture with the truth in the word of God. I think we believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the most important thing in human history. I think we believe in the need to be saved. Lots of my friends seem to think you come to faith by osmosis. Us evangelicals believe you get on your knees and you meet your saviour. We also believe in being active in the world, making the world more like the kingdom. That's why evangelicals in this country led the abolition of the slave trade, provided education before anyone else. And in recent years, I've had the vision for and delivered Christians Against Poverty, street pastors, food banks. Yeah. That, for me, is an evangelical, those four things you've, put together. Uh, you, you've said before that we've, we've become a lot better at the kind of social action element mm. of being a Christian through what we do. Mm. But I think you've said as well, we've, we've somehow lost the element of the preaching, of the words, of actually stating this is who we believe about Jesus. Is that still a problem, that we need to be a bit more forward with our words and not just our actions? I just think we need to be in balance, really. You know, if you look at the character of Epaphroditus, who's described in Scripture as a balanced Christian, he was a servant, but he was always a, a messenger. I think just the two together, I think the word and deed argument is yesterday's argument. We don't need to go over that. What's more important, social action or evangelism? How do you separate them? And we've got more and more teenagers becoming adults who've grown up in a church where you paint someone's fence to tell them about Jesus, mm-hmm. or you tell someone about Jesus and you paint the fence to show yeah. that you mean business. So we don't separate them, but I do think we need balance. And I do still think that in some ways, the words seem a bit more out of fashion. You said it's, it's easy to sort of say what an evangelical is, but of course that, that word has an interesting history. Um, you know, a couple of generations ago, it was fundamentalist Christians, and that, mm. was, that word was used because mm. Christians say we believe the fundamentals. And of course, quite quickly, that word started to have some very negative connotations. Mm. And even today, I think, generally speaking, when we talk about fundamentalist Christians mm. or even fundamentalist Muslims, it tends to have a negative connotation. So this word evangelical became more prominent. Now, of course, we're in a situation where Certainly in America, the word evangelical is defined more by politics of who you voted for. Uh, often in America, it's a case of if you're an evangelical, you vote for Trump. So again, some would say it's, it's beginning to have negative connotations, this word evangelical. And some are even saying we should be dropping it entirely. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, if I lived in the United States, my answer might be different. I've got to be honest, but I don't. I live in the United Kingdom. And I'm not so you sure. you don't think that impacts how people in this country think when I they think, hear about evangelicals? I think it does a bit. But I think in this country, I don't think the term's redundant. I think it needs a little bit of redeeming. But I think we're still in a position to do that. I don't think you can argue that evangelicalism in this country is politicised. For example, let's say, let's imagine, it's not even possible to imagine, Sam, that we're about to have a general election soon. <laughs> the message from the EA will be it's important to vote. Yeah. 
that it won't be it's important to vote for boom because also if you go to america depending on your ethnicity depends on what the christian vote is anyway so i think we have to separate ourselves a little bit from that and in this context in this nation if the, if there's a better term that, that does everything let, let's talk about it but in this context in this nation for me that evangelical term is still a unifying thing within the church and that's when, important when was the last time any kind of survey or research was done on how people perceive the word evangelical and what were the results how well do you know i, I don't want to give specifics because i don't want to talk out of context so early into my into my role but there's no doubt that if you're not a christian you're going to struggle with this term but then let's be honest as well, who are we going to listen to for our terminology? So if you listen to the media, they don't know the difference between an evangelist and an evangelical anyway. They mix the two Some words Christians up. Some Christians don't either. Well, maybe. But they mix the two, two terms up. So, so are we going to take our view from people that haven't even considered what the term might mean? Mm. Also, in the end, being an evangelical is about being passionate about the gospel. So most of the time I'm with those who don't know Jesus. I am not discussing the highs and lows of the term evangelical. I'm doing my best to tell them the story of the risen yeah. Jesus. Is your argument that, I guess, the word evangelical has no worse connotations than the word Christian? Um, I, I think in some ways, if we wanted to get that, it, it's a word that, that people who aren't one don't tend to use. And I think that we in the church spend a lot more time fighting over whether these words are relevant or not, when actually there's a world to reach. Mm. So tell me more about that and, and what exactly the Evangelical Alliance is doing to reach that world you know if i'd ask you what does the ea do yeah well the ea has always existed for two things to try and unite the church in mission to the uk and to give the church a clear and effective voice into every layer of society i think um over the years that's had particular strength sometimes outside of the church of england where in the church of england you might have bishops in the house of lords but other forms of church how do you get represented how do you speak so so there's those two things when it comes to, to the mission and the gospel, that's my primary passion. You know, I, If you cut me in half, I'm just someone who's desperate to see people meet Jesus. That's why um, some of the terminology and stuff actually is secondary to me to how we're going to see people come to faith. And when I joined the EA from Youth for Christ, I got really frustrated. Because at Youth for Christ, it was easy. We want to reach these young people, we'll do this resource. You know, Youth ministry in some ways, it, it's easy to provide stuff for. I came to the EA, I went around the UK, I was getting people excited about reaching people, but not leaving them anything. So one thing we have done is we've produced a one-stop evangelism hub called greatcommission.co.uk. Because when I was in Youth for Christ, if you'd said, what is, how do you reach this you young people? Or how, how do you do this? The answer always had to be Youth for Christ. The EA is made up of 4,000 churches, 700 organizations, tens of thousands of individuals. It, it's an umbrella. So if you put everything in one place, you serve people. So every Monday morning, we release a video of someone who's come to faith in the UK. You want to change culture, tell a different story, tell the Jesus story. There's then a, a, a multi-authored blog on there. There's not many of those in the UK on evangelism. There's then a prayer section because we overestimate our activities and underestimate our prayers. But then there's this ACT section where there's over 230 different resources. You search for young people. You find Youth for Christ, but you find about 25 other things. It's the only website in the world, I think, you search for adult small group material. The first two things are Alpha and Christianity Explored. Why? Because we're the Evangelical Alliance. And then within that too, we're saying, well, how do we help the church with with Blind spots, perhaps. Mm. Big area we're working on. Toddler groups. How are you hoping to change, to shift this huge organisation, this huge um, body, this this umbrella group, as you call it? Because you're brand new to heading it up. I think you're, this is day three in the yep, job. Yeah, day three. Do you have a distinctive vision? I mean, I'm not, I'm not expecting you to say, well, I'm going to completely change everything about the EA. But there must be some elements of who you are, of who mm. got, what God has called you to, that you are hoping to shift or to change the, I don't know, the dynamic or the way that EA does certain things. Mm. What would you say to that? Mm. Well, since the day I joined, because I, I might be day three in this, but I've been there four and a half years. 
The number one thing I gave in my presentation for the job is I don't want the Evangelical Alliance to lose the Evangel, the gospel, the good news. We're so often defined and caricatured by what we're against. What about what we're for? You know, all of my views and all kinds of things come from the fact that I love Jesus and Jesus has changed my life. So I am desperate for the EA to be the good news people, to be hopeful. That's body language as much as anything else. You know, um, Edmund Burke said, one man sees a closed door, the other sees an open opportunity. We've got, we, we can choose how we perceive things. So I think the EA needs to be more hopeful. I think it definitely needs to be more focused on what it's always been focused on, which is the gospel. Mm. That if you get missional drift with the EA, it's when we get distracted from talking about the gospel. But then within it as well, there's an importance to speak up on certain issues. So the voice is important. Yeah, I'd love to talk a bit more about those issues as, as we go. But first, let's take it right back to you and yep. to your family background. I said at the beginning, Clive Calvert, your father, yeah. you really are following, following in his footsteps and even your grandfather's footsteps yeah. in some of the positions and organisations yeah. you work for. Has, that ever, has there ever felt a kind of um, almost an unhelpful weight of certain expectations because of your family background have you ever had to struggle with that a bit yeah no definitely i mean god's got a sense of humor i'm one of four kids the other three all wanted to do this kind of thing i did i had no interest i wanted to be a footballer and i did my best i did all right with that actually but it didn't quite work out i only became a christian when i was 18 after my mum and dad had moved to america my dad moved to america to an american tier fund six months later day after my 18th birthday party when i nearly died let's say uh, i woke up and gave my life to jesus on a park bench but then i prayed a really really stupid prayer I said, Lord, I'll go wherever, whenever, and whatever for you. And that's led to me going to Youth for Christ. There was no plan. There was no blueprint. Went to Youth for Christ, obediently followed. When the call to EA a few years came, okay, okay, that was a real fight. I noticed um, you actually said before that the EA was not an organisation on your bucket list to work for. <laughs> oh, quite the opposite, yeah. I was desperate not to. Um, I, I know the reality of what it means to, to work at the EA, but also you want to you carve your own way. But anyone that actually knows me and my dad, knows that some of our gifting's the same, but our personalities are night and day. And so um, you can move on a bit. But mm. you mentioned my granddad too. I mean, he ran the EA as well. Yeah. He started Tear Fund when he was head of EA. Wow. So you're kind of like, my dad started Spring Harvest, Sam. So if you've got any good ideas, <laughs> I could really do with one. But you know, in the end, you stop fighting your DNA. And you say, if, if God's got this for me, I'm going to let my ego not stop me doing it. Yeah. It must be a bit frustrating, though, that even in an interview like this, it's always kind of bringing up your family heritage and, oh, well, you know, you would follow, follow in the footsteps where, you know, you must, there must be a sense of frustration. Well, I am my own man. I do have my own giftings, my own ideas, and it's not all just about my family background. Um, yeah, it, it's odd when someone of your age does it because with respect, most people that talk to me about my parents are old enough to be my parents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I think the truth in the end is if people want to do it, when I was younger, I hated it. But now I'm like, people say, oh, you're just like your dad. Oh, thanks. You yeah. know what? My dad's a great man. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to be him, but I'm proud of what my folks have done. I'm from a family. I mean, I could be from all kinds of messes of backgrounds. I'm from a family who've given their lives to try and bring about the kingdom here mm. in the United Kingdom. Why would you not be proud of that? How would you describe your calling? I am called to reach the lost and try and unite God's people in reaching the lost. That is why, like it or not, EA is a hand and a glove. Talking a bit about church unity, because obviously the Evangelical Alliance exists, like you say, to unite evangelicals. Mm. But I imagine there's some people who say, well, that, that's good, that's important. But, you know, when we think about Christian unity, it's, mm. it's got to be broader than that as well, mm. hasn't it? I mean, mm. what about other denominations or mm. other Christians who wouldn't identify with the evangelical label? And, and shouldn't we be wanting unity there? So, so how do you balance that? Because presumably you would want to say, well, as, as the church in the whole of the UK, we, there is a sense in which we need to be united. But there's also a sense in which the evangelical alliance is seeking to unite evangelicals specifically. So is there a bit of a tension there? I don't think there's a tension. But there's two forms of unity you're involved in. So on the one hand, let's be honest, if this room is, is heaven, it's not exclusively owned by the evangelicals. So let's get realistic. <laughs> Some people think it is. I, 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 
it's my tribe within the church and there are some com areas of commonality around which evangelicals can gather and we can then get on with doing stuff mm -hmm. it creates the kind of unity that has action and has legs that's exciting However, there's, there's also then a, a wider church unity that's important too. We're involved in loads of local unity groups around the UK. And, and you know what, being honest, they're run by evangelicals. They've got evangelical values at their heart, but the unity extends beyond that too. So, so I think, I, I don't see a tension. I actually see something that works quite well together. Mm -hmm. But I also think as well, there's an importance in those of us all around the globe and throughout history, evangelicals have been defined by a passionate proclamation of the gospel. So those of us that really carry that, we also need a place in which to be joined, to be united and to drive forward in seeking to make Jesus known. How would you explain the gospel to me if I'm a non-Christian and you've only got 60 seconds? <laughs> you're asking me to do something Jesus never did, but that's okay. Um, I think if, if you're my, a non-Christian friend, then I would talk about a story in context. If you're someone I've met on the tube, then I would simply talk about the fact that due to our brokenness, Jesus, who is the saviour of the world, you know, came, into, came down to the earth and you start talking about that stuff and it's really easy at Christmas time and you start connecting around that stuff. And you start saying, well, do you believe that? Did that happen? How, what did that mean? And then, and then I'll talk about how I believe that Jesus then died in my place and that I can't understand how if he didn't die for 2,000 years, no one's found the body. You know, the whole time, I, I, what I wouldn't do is give you a monologue. Right. So even if you hear me talking, yeah. I'm asking things to provoke comeback. Yeah. So I'm not going to give you a 60 second presentation of the gospel. I'll do that into a microphone. But if I'm meeting someone on one-to-one, -one, I am going to start talking about this, but engaging out of you. Mm. Because I think too often in our gospel sharing, we're, we're monologuing. They say, what's your response? No, no, you had a response at point one, at point three, at point four. So we're going to have a conversation mm. and it's not going to be 60 seconds. It's interesting because I think when most people think about, yeah, we've got to proclaim the gospel, they probably do think about, well, I've got to give some sort of presentation mm. to someone, like you say, whether it's preaching with a microphone mm. or, or even if it's one-to-one. -one. But I think you're right that we've got to learn to listen to people and... I suppose one thing I've learned over time is that the, the gospel has many different angles and elements to it. And some of those are going to hit home for one person in a way they won't hit home for another. And it's, it's almost about tailoring the message to the person in front of you, because there are elements of the gospel that's really going to speak to that person in their particular moment of need. Yeah. And it's also, Sam, about not thinking you've got to do everything right now. You know, um, I always find it interesting. When did the disciples become Christians? That's a fun conversation to have. But we don't always have to solve everything in one moment. We're also part of a family. But the one thing we must avoid when Bonhoeffer warned about cheap grace, you know, tailoring the gospel to what people want to hear so that they say yes, we mustn't do that either. Mm. So it's a, it's a process. Mm. Equally, there are moments, carol services, um, most months I'm speaking at things where people are like, we want a gospel presentation. Fine. But on a one to one, you're not going to get monologues. Mm. You're going to get a conversation. And you're also going to do what Jesus said more than come and hear. Come and see. Do you think the big um, the big events still work then? Because some would look at the kind of stadium evangelism that, that Billy Graham used to do that clearly did work. I mean, hundreds of people, thousands of people responded to the gospel. And people would say those sorts of large scale events, they don't seem to have the same impact that they did a generation ago. I don't know if it's the event or the anointing sometimes. If Billy Graham was around now with that kind of anointing, would it still work? I should think so. I think the proclamation of the gospel still works. So most Sunday mornings, I'll see someone come to faith. Why? Because they're there in the crowd. But I think we have to diversify the appeal. I think the other thing as well is we're starting from a different place with people. So the idea that someone is walking around, take the Engels scale, which is, which is great, starts at zero where you're basically ambivalent to God. Who's walking around ambivalent? Most people might be minus five or minus six. The idea you'd walk in and it'd be a 20 minute presentation and that's done all the work, all the heavy lifting. I'm not sure. Mm. I'm not sure culture fits with that. Mm. But large gatherings to proclaim the gospel 
will always work. What's been the best day of your ministry and what's been the worst? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, I think the best day of my, hmm, the best day of my ministry actually was, I used to run a youth work at New Wine Youth and there was this bunch of young people that had been causing me problems all week. They were the young footballers. I was about 25, so I was still a good player. So I was <laughs> able to hold me over them, but they were just an absolute nightmare. And on the last night, all six of these lads gave their lives to Jesus. Wow. And you know, when you've worked something all week and you're like, you're, every day you're like, your prayer actually is, Lord, would they not turn up to the meeting? And I think when they all came to faith on the last night and I went back to their vicar room, that was just amazing. Mm. So that would be the best. The worst, I, I've had some moments where people have really gone for me and gone for my family. And some of the social media attack, there was one time when um, I had people saying on social media that they were praying that my kids would have mental health issues and struggling with stuff. And um, I remember getting one message that said, at Gav Calver, you are the scum of the earth and they're gonna burn in hell. Hashtag love wins. And you're like, okay. Wow. And you get some of that really personal stuff and you just sit there thinking, I, I get my tactics wrong sometimes but my motive is actually really pure. <laughs> and when people so misread you and don't know you and just lay into you, mm. you're not bulletproof. Mm. And I think that some of that personal stuff's really horrible. Yeah. It's especially horrible online. It's, it's almost as if we forget that there's a real person behind the keyboard or behind the avatar or behind the Twitter account. And it can be so vicious. And I guess the sad thing for me is that it seems like Christians can be just as bad as anyone else with this stuff. I mean, some mm. of the kind of... Um, theological arguments that just descend into you know some of the stuff that you've been describing mm. is, is really sad and I, I do sometimes if I'm honest get a bit frustrated and think come on as Christians shouldn't we be demonstrating a better way to the world I don't know if you agree yeah. with that I'll, yeah no I couldn't agree more Sam I think friendly fire on social media it helps no one it doesn't no I've not seen anyone suddenly turn around and say you're right I'm mm. with you I've not seen anyone come from the side and say I want to be a Christian now you know we've got to do this better I think also um in the end the bare pit of social media is, is not becoming fun. Mm. So my social media in the last year has been far more magnolia. Why? Because to be honest, I want to engage with people, but I don't want to be drawn into that. Mm. And it takes so much of your attention away. Mm. And even when it's horrible, you start realizing that the dopamine that people get from interactions is dangerous. Because even when you've got people going for you, it makes you feel good somehow. And so not, I, I, yeah, I, I kind of wish it didn't exist, but it does. So what we need to do is use it as a communication tool for the kingdom absolutely i guess it's still relatively new isn't it social yeah. media i mean there's plenty of people around e even myself included you mentioned my age but i can remember a time before social media as <laughs> really? well and um it's still a new tool that i think that the, everyone including the church is learning yeah. how best to use it i mean one of the questions i have because because you're such a, a passionate evangelist and work at the evangelical alliance is well, i think most christians are agreed we want to use this medium for good and we want to use it to share the gospel but I have questions about well, exactly how, because there's everything from the slightly cheesy twee pictures yeah, yeah, of sunsets yeah. and Bible verses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is, from your reaction, I'm guessing you, you, you don't go in for that either. But, you know, how do, <laughs> how do we actually share the gospel in a way that's relevant, in a way that's going to work in a, in a kind of social media forum? Yeah. I'm, if there was one methodology, we'd all be doing it. Yeah, I think we haven't found it, have we? No, I don't, I'm not sure we found it yet, but Leonard Sweet says that saying you don't do social media now is like saying for the last 500 years, I don't do books. Mm. So we've got to get realistic. Yeah. It's here to stay. But I think God extends our prophetic imagination sometimes. So one example, so I, I was like, is this really any use? Should I delete my accounts? Then one, one guy contacts me on Facebook Messenger. He's heard me speak at something and I've done a gospel appeal and he's not responded. He sends me a message, really loved what you said. What, what do I do from here? 
I sent him a clip, and I think it might even be from this show, of Glenn Scrivener's sort of uh, 90 seconds yeah, thing. Yeah, that was, sent, he was sitting in that chair. There you go, it, there Glenn's you go. amazing. Sent him that clip, we yeah. started talking. We exchanged, I've never spoken to this guy. Uh, he's heard me speak, but I've never spoken to him. We exchanged probably 10 or 15 Facebook Messenger things, by which point I said to him on a Facebook Messenger, so what's stopping you? Why don't you surrender your life to Jesus? So he did. So we did, this is, this is the proper, we did a strange version of the sinner's prayer almost, <laughs> swapping messages to and forward on Facebook Messenger. I've still never met this guy, surrendered his life to Jesus. Every few months he gets in touch to tell me how he's doing, he's doing well. When that happened, I came away from that and I thought, all right, Lord, you've just shown me that this works mm. as much as anything else, but we've got to start being more creative and extending yes. our imagination. I completely agree on the creativity. And, and like you say, Glenn is an incredible example of someone who is incredibly creative with it and seems to have a real gift for, for using a lot of this technology in, in an evangelistic way. I wish we had 25 more Glenn Scrivener. Uh, hundreds more. Hundreds but, more. But the one thing I would say, Sam, is the backstage of social media is easier than the front. Right. So on the front stage, it feels like everyone's modus operandi is to attack you. <laughs> on the backstage, it's like a text message. You've been a Christian a long time. What are the issues you've changed your mind on and rethought? <laughs> um, I'm not sure they're issues, I think body language. I think I'm so passionate. Yeah, I'm just, this is just who I am. It's not just, and in every part of my life, you go to me of a football match, I'll be the one starting the songs. I'm just, that's just who I am. And so the danger of that as well is you could be too forthright. So I've learned um, to be less impulsive. I've learned to be less uh, dominating. I've learned to not destroy people with my tongue. So if you're talking about theologically, I, I've learned the lessons of James 3 very much so. I'm not sure there's many doctrines, if that's what we're going, on which I've moved. Really? But I think there are lots of things in which my behaviour's changed. So I think I'm a lot kinder than I was. And that's really important. There isn't, I'm from a very odd background, Sam. I grew up around the EA and Spring Harvest and all these things. So I reckon when I came to faith at 18, I was like someone who'd been a Christian for 15 years, not like someone who'd been a Christian for 15 minutes. So a lot of these things have been wrestled with, looked at. Now, there are some things on which from time to time, you change and you move and you look at and you say, did I get that quite right? And I think the word sorry is really important. But on a lot of the, on a lot of the major doctrines, when I was studying them at LBC not long after being a Christian, I said, like, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm with the kind of historical biblical orthodoxy of the church here. But behavior, hmm. body language, that stuff, you've got to build a platform to be heard. Is it true that our country is becoming increasingly secular? Yeah, there's a secular tsunami going on. Yeah, I completely think there is, but I also think it's eating itself for breakfast. In what way? Well, I think you get one thing is declared as absolute truth, and then something else comes along 30 seconds later, not literally, but, and they're like, well, how, that doesn't fit with that. So the, when you push the ideologies, they start unstitching themselves, and people declare all kinds of communities as these people are all together on this, but they're not. The, the, the most united thing in this nation, I really do believe, is the church. You know, I go to different places in the UK all the time and I've got brothers and sisters mm. straight away. There's not a community like that. We just haven't done very well at showing that to the world. Mm. But I think the secularism in our nation, it, it won't keep getting bad. Corinth is not worse than what was written to. At some point, there will be a puritanical shift back of sorts. And perhaps it's starting in younger people who, as Mark Sayers says, seem to be living like they want the kingdom without the king. On this idea of, of secularisation and the country becoming more and more godless, I mean, the statistics... You know, they are quite shocking. If you look at the membership of the Church of England, mm. it's more than half in a generation. Mm. It's thought that now only 2% of young people identify with the Church of England. And it's not just the Church of England. You know, mm. you talk to other denominational leaders, they paint a similarly bleak picture. And, you know, there'll be those who are thinking, we can't just 
keep tinkering around the edges with church, don't we need some sort of major rethink on anything from church, what we do with church buildings, to how we do mission, to anything, frankly? Can we not agree on something big needs to change? Yeah. We must be doing something big wrong. Yeah. Yeah, there are always moments where you have to look at yourself and you have to be critical and say, what needs to change? But I think things have changed as well. If I look at the kind of landscape my children are growing up in, I've got a 12 and a nine-year-old, compared to what I was when I was their age. When I was their age, the church almost seemed to do, let's entertain them enough to keep them. And that's led to all kinds of things. Like Shane Claiborne wrote at length about, we haven't lost a generation because we didn't entertain them enough. We didn't challenge them enough. Right. If I look at the landscape my daughter at secondary school is in compared to what I was, her faith is being challenged massively in a way that perhaps previously only got challenged at university. Right. It's getting challenged earlier. Therefore, the kind of youth groups we need, the kind of discipleship mm. we need, the kind of parenting we need is different. Mm. But also it means that the kind of young people you have at 18, if they love Jesus, their faith is, is not nominal. So I think we've got the death of nominalism. But what you get out of the back of that potentially is a remnant who are more infectious even. Now, I know I'm being opportunist here and being optimistic, but I look at the church and I say, well, actually, to be a Christian in this country now is so outside of social orthodoxy mm. that you've really got to believe it. You've really got to mean it. And we've really got to go for it. Mm. Well, maybe some stuff's coming to this nation that's been around the world for a while that when the church is under pressure and not socially beneficial, the church seems to grow. I'm Sam Hales. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio and my conversation with Gavin Calver from the Evangelical Alliance. Join us for the rest of our conversation coming up right after this. Premier Christianity magazine in this month's issue. We give you a rare glimpse inside China's underground church as Paul Hathaway gives us the lowdown on what's been called the greatest revival in history. His special report reveals how the nation's 100 million Christians are thriving and seeing many miracles and salvations despite serious persecution. Plus, find out why Benny Hinn has renounced the prosperity gospel, get equipped to help those suffering with mental ill health, and be inspired by the Christians who are proving you're never too old to go on mission. For your free copy, visit premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to The Profile here on Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of the UK's leading Christian publication. That's Premier Christianity magazine. If you'd like a free sample copy of our latest issue featuring interviews, news, reviews, features and so much more, head to premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. My guest on today's show is Gavin Calvert. Gavin is the brand new CEO of the Evangelical Alliance. In fact, when I spoke to Gavin just this week, he was only on day three of his time as CEO. So in this interview, he reflects on his own life and spiritual journey and also what he's hoping to achieve through the Evangelical Alliance. Let's listen in to the rest of our conversation. On those issues where Christians are challenged, I mean, one of the big ones that always comes up is issues related to LGBT. Yeah. Um, I, I talk to a lot of Christians who are a little bit older who the change in the law over marriage just really caught them by surprise. Yeah. Christians who are older just gr basically grew up in one country and felt like it had changed overnight to something they were quite uncomfortable with. 
But of course, many Christians who express that point of view are often attacked for what's seen by many as homophobia. So tensions run incredibly high on this particular debate. But do you think that in order to call yourself an evangelical in this country today, you have to retain a traditional view on sexual ethics, including the view that marriage is between one man and one woman? Is that a defining factor of what it means to be an evangelical today? I think I, I, I think for me it is. I think for me it, it's a it's a view of scripture, but it's also it's an affirmation of what we stand for, not just a thing about what we're not for. Now I don't want to spend my next ten years talking about these issues, so I have a historically biblical orthodox view on these things. But I do think it's really important that we make sure that across the board, holiness is pursued relentlessly. So I I get frustrated with the fact that Christians seem to have a lot more moments to say, well, you're wrong because you're doing that. Well, what about about the pride in your life? What about the way you're fiddling your taxes? What about what you're looking at on your computer? What about how you are within your marriage and how that's being wrong? Now, I think within this, it's tricky because we're dealing with people. And you know what? I would absolutely love in some ways to to not have to ever have any any boundaries or anything outside of which I'm saying, actually, no, no, for me, that's that's important. But in the end, it's not me that makes up the that makes up the rules. It's not me that makes up the word of God. So on this issue, I don't want to talk about it forever. But yeah, I am. Yeah. Orth- I'm, I'm but you must you must issue. have met evangelicals as I have who would self describe as evangelicals who say like I believe the Bible. I believe Jesus yeah. died for my sins. I just believe as well that we've interpreted Paul wrong. We've interpreted the Bible wrong. And actually, there's nothing wrong with with homosexuality. For example, mm. what's your response to people who say that? Well, it's the dialogue. I mean, what I'm not going to be is I'm not the evangelical police. The Evangelical Alliance. So we're clear on what we believe and stand for, and we want people to align with that. If they don't, that, that that's a choice. On this issue as well, I'm not losing friends on this issue. I will say that, you know, for me, this is where I am. You know, one of my friends asked me to preach at his same-sex marriage soon. I have to say no. But I'm not losing friends over it because relationship, mm-hmm. you know, I had a commissioning into my role as EA last week. There's plenty of non-Christians there. One of my best friends I grew up with is an employment law barrister. He says to me at the end, he says, I literally couldn't disagree more with everything you stand for, <laughs> but I'm your mate. That's good. And I think we can do relationship. Mm-hmm. And what I don't like on this issue, I tell you what I don't like is, it feels like you've got two options. This is on social media more than anything. Utter inclusion or utter homophobia. And that's just, that's a very childish way of approaching this. There's far more to it than that. Mm-hmm. And, and a phobia, I, I certainly am not in any way homophobic. But that doesn't mean that I have to be utterly inclusive. And I think the church needs to show another way. I think a lot of evangelicals who would share your, your biblical convictions, though, are, are frustrated that they, they feel there isn't more of a Christian, a united Christian voice on this. You know, I talk to a lot of Christians who say, well, actually, the Evangelical Alliance doesn't really speak up a lot on this particular issue. Um, and they'd want you to be a bit more forthright. So, I mean, it's one of those issues that yeah. it's, uh, whatever you do, you're going to be criticised for, of course. But what would you say to those who say, well, actually, Gavin, I'm really pleased that you share my biblical convictions, but I actually think this is an issue where the Bible's under attack in the culture, and when a particular issue is under attack in the culture, the Christian voice does need to be quite loud on it. I think the Bible's under attack, uh, and this is one part of that. But for me, um, we're playing a big game of Kaplunk. That might be before your time. Do you remember Kaplunk with the marbles Kaplunk. and straws? Yep. If you can get a positive view on same-sex relationships from scripture, then for me, you've pulled out the straw that makes the marbles go down. But the issue's the Bible. The issue's not sexuality in that moment. But this is the the issue of the day, the litmus test of orthodoxy in our moment. There will be others. I plan to be at the EA long enough that perhaps there'll be another one. But whatever it is, it comes back to the Bible, not to that piece. I do think that EA needs to be braver. 
I do. I'm going into this role. I've said we need to be braver and we need to be kinder. But we don't necessarily need to be braver just on that issue because people want us just to talk on one issue. No, we're not a single issue. Mm. <laughs> we, we, we are a, a Bible-believing alliance. I also think on this issue, EA, sometimes we mustn't treat people like objects. People are people. You know, so I described earlier some of how it feels to be on the receiving end of social media. That's brutal social media. But even soft social media put the wrong way can treat people like objects. We need to make sure we're treating people like people. Being righteous and kind, like Joseph is with Mary. When he's going to divorce Mary, he's going to do the right thing, but he's going to do it kindly, nicely away from things. Yeah. Then there's an angelic visitation. We're up for that too. <laughs> there's been cases in the, in the media, in the Christian media and the mainstream media, of, of Christians who have lo apparently lost their jobs over some of this stuff. Yeah. There's been cases of um, people who have worked as doctors, of nurses, who have um, taken what you would describe as a, as a biblical position on, on sexual ethics and have found themselves getting into really serious trouble in their profession and um, in some cases being let go from their jobs and, and losing their livelihood. And I think this has led to a bit of a fear amongst some Christians going into their workplaces of what can I say, what can't I say? I was speaking to someone recently who was trying to counsel one of the people in their church when their particular organization was saying, well, the, we'll change all your lanyards to a, to a rainbow flag colored lanyard and everyone has to, has to wear this from now on. And, and the Christian being a little bit uncomfortable with it and not sure, you know, th these are real issues that face people. Yeah, there's, yeah, a, there's a bit of fear out there. What's your message on this? What would you say to those Christians who are in those positions who, who don't, don't want to appear homophobic in any way, but would hold the same biblical convictions that you do and are finding it quite difficult out there in mainstream culture right now? Yeah, I, I think we've got to do more around defensive conscience. So I think on all kinds of issues, you know, if you work in, in, in a hospital that does abortions, You've got to give some defense of, of conscience. And I think in this area, I, I don't think it's very fair actually at the moment that, that one person's view, worldview, ideology, whatever you want to call it, is becoming militant. So all the things that we sometimes get accused of, the irony is they're being done often to us. And I do think we need to do more around defense of conscience. And we as the Evangelical Alliance need to look at that. One thing we have done, which is similar, but slightly left is we did something called Speak Up about two and a half years ago, it's been hugely successful, which was the Lawyers Christian Fellowship. It was a 16 page reminder of your gospel freedoms. Because mm. people were saying, well, I'm not allowed to share my faith at work. I'm yeah. not allowed to pray at work. And they were saying that because of these stories and these yeah. stories carry on though. So is there not a contradiction there? Because the EA are saying, speak up, it's fine. You have legal rights yeah. and we live in a democracy. You can share your faith. And yet if you look at the Christian news stories, a lot of it is this Christian's lost their job for saying the wrong thing. This Christian's lost their job for saying. So there's, there's something odd going on there. I think also for every story you hear, uh, they're used to scare everyone off and it's one story in, in masses. I think the problem for a lot of Christians is we get our views on what we're allowed to do from the media, not from the law. You know, you can't wear a cross to work. It's not true. You can't wear a cross to size of your torso. That's a health and safety problem. You can't pray at work. It's not true. You can't take advantage of power relationships in the workplace. Mm -hmm. We need to understand the law. But the thing is with the law as well, that there's almost more freedom to share the gospel in this country than any country on earth. But if we don't use those freedoms, our children and our children's children will lose them. Mm. So we do also need to step into mm. what we're allowed to do at this point. It's like with street, street preachers forever getting arrested. There's very rarely any convictions. We, we need to start getting realistic about the fact that actually we have more freedom in this space. But coming back to the original question, defense of conscience is really important. Mm. And that's not just for us. Why would, you, why would you want other people in the workplace being made to do something that goes against their conscience? Mm. Peter Tatchell on the Today programme recently said that it's perfectly possible to have a deep held religious conviction that homosexuality is a sin and not be homophobic. And he used the example of his mother hmm. who holds that conviction. 
And so I do think sometimes we get ourselves really worked up and think, There's a, how, how'd you get this? Then someone like Peter Tatchell says that. And we're like, oh, brilliant. Now we don't have to say it. And there are lots of reasonable voices out there. And I think for some of us, we need to sound more reasonable too. And learn some of these things, like, like as a parent, as well as as an evangelical, as a parent, when you look out on some of the issues around transgenderism and stuff, it's my 12-year-old daughter at school. I have some views on that as a parent, as well as as a Christian. Mm. And, and the, the views as a parent might be the same as as a Christian, but they sound very reasonable to other parents. Mm. There's also a very loud, silent, sorry, a very quiet majority in this country that don't say stuff till they get to vote in all kinds of things and no one knows. A few years in this country have shown that. But. Just very quickly on that, um, uh, I, I did want to mention very briefly Brexit. And the only reason I want to mention this is in the context of local churches, because I'm hearing different things at the moment on should a preacher in a pulpit say how they voted <laughs> and I've, I've heard an interesting sort of discussion on this at the moment because some are concerned that the church is divided over brexit and others are saying no the church isn't divided over brexit at all we all come together on a sunday we all voted different ways and we all worship the same god yeah i'm i personally would never say in a pulpit and i get in them a lot anyway i voted in anything I'm not, I think, I'm not sure that's the right thing to do in that place. I do think the church can model something different. We have the chance to show what unity is standing on the rock of ages in a time of absolute chaos. And I think that's really important. And I talk about that from a pulpit. Mm. I also talk about the unprecedented opportunity this gives us for the gospel. Everything people's depended on, politics is the new religion, all that stuff falls apart. Well, let me introduce you to something that's unchanging. Mm. In the school my kids go to, 60% Portuguese. It's an opportunity to minister something totally different. Mm. But I think what you actually voted, I think it, it, it's, mm. uh, it's difficult. And I don't think pulpits should be used for that. It, it's been suggested that in the Church of England, a lot of people who go to a Church of England church voted to leave. Whereas, of course, the Church of England kind of hierarchy, if you like. I mean, Justin Welby's been quite clear, really, that yeah. he fa favoured the Remain position. A lot of the, the bishops would say the same. So it, we, we know roughly where the Church of England has sat on this, with those in the pews... Uh, tending to favour, like the rest of the country, mm. tending to favour leave, whereas the, the kind of leadership being quite different. Do you have any sense of what the evangelical breakdown would be like on that? Is there any similarities or differences? Yeah, no, I could tell you exactly what the evangelical breakdown was. It was 52 to 48. Tell you why, because the evangelical church is diverse and is full of all kinds of different people and is representative of the country. I also think um, in my public ministry, I, I do 80% of it outside of London because I have to live in London for the job, but you've got to know what's going on in the country. Mm. The sounds are very different all mm. over the UK to the ones that we get down here it's in Westminster. It's very interesting. I'll, I'd be fascinated to know more about that because <clears throat> I've heard others say similar things on the politics of this country, of, of London is just different. Mm. Do you find that in, in any senses in, um, in more of a church context or a theological context, are there differences between London and what's happening yeah. in, I don't know, Norfolk? or Hugely in terms of activity of church, not so much in theology, although things more cosmopolitan, whatever. We were in uh, the black country before near Dudley. My wife's a church leader. And uh, in that church, we did loads during the week. Where we are now in Northwest London, I just don't bother. If we do more than one thing during the week, that's just too much. And if you do something during the week, people turn up in suits because they're on their way home from work. Whereas when we were in the, in the black country, you could start something at seven, people have gone home, had their tea and come. Mm. If you start something at eight now, you get people just about, but you can't go much after half nine because obviously people need to get to bed and go, there's, there's a conveyor belt here. Mm. Everything's quicker. Mm. And I think also um, we mustn't be London-centric in our understanding of this nation. I think a lot of people would agree with that. Yeah, we shouldn't be London-centric, but what does that actually mean practically for how yeah. you guys operate? Um, we're doing loads of unity through the Gather Network in 140 different places in, the, in England, most of which aren't in London. 
Um, as I said before, most of my ministry is happening outside of London. We're increasingly asking where do we need people to be based. Um, a friend of mine's just joined us recently as head of mission to young adults based in Birmingham. Doesn't need to be based in London. Mm-hmm. So, so it's starting to to work in a way that actually says th- this is a UK. Mm. Now, I think EA actually is a wonderful example. There's lots of things I wouldn't pick us up for, but we're a wonderful <laughs> example of of working in the Celtic nations and yet being a united UK. Mm. So we've got offices in in Scotland, in Wales, in Northern Ireland, and yet we work together really well as well. But we probably need to do even better at the English piece because England is a really complex, interesting place. What are the misconceptions that people have about the EA? I think they think it's old fashioned. Um, I think they think that we're sort of ranters who are against everything. And I think it's a very interesting move to have replaced someone in their mid 60s with someone who's 39. (laughs) Um, I think that uh, a lot of of people in the church would be more liberal, have this view that when you go younger, everyone's suddenly not evangelical and that's not true. EA is a membership organization. Right? If I ask for members on a Sunday, I get mostly people 10 years younger than me and 10 years older than me. It's like church leadership. And so I think some of the misconceptions on the EA need to be reimagined. I think people also think that the EA was good and the past tense is a problem. So we need to make sure we reimagine that. But I think also one misconception too is people think we're miles bigger than we are. Because actually the organization's not massive, but the influence is. So I've noticed that coming from Youth for Christ to EA. Youth for Christ had a lot more staff. But if Youth for Christ said something, people wouldn't notice. If EA said something, I could get myself into trouble very easily. <laughs> Much bigger platform. Um, you mentioned uh, membership, and we've spoken about how general you know, um, general secularization and a lot of denominations are on the decline. Is the membership of the EA growing or declining? It's growing for the first time in a while. Um, we've got serious about individual membership again. It's growing. Why would someone become an... Because in- I think a lot of people say, well, I go to my church and my church is part of the EA, but why would I personally want to sign yeah. up and pay money to be a member? Well, because of those two things we do, uniting in mission, but then speaking into every layer of society. The speaking into every layer of society, there's a growing scepticism in our culture towards institutions. You'll have seen this. You're, you're a journalist. You understand all mm-hmm. these things. And so we're increasingly asked, well, how many individuals do you represent? So in some ways, people join in order to give us their voice to stand behind what we're doing. Mm. But also they do it to, to be engaged with and to be informed. Um, the, the magazine's really well received. Obviously, um, it can at best claim to be the second best Christian <laughs> publication in the oh, country. Oh, you're too kind. <laughs> you know how but, to win over journalists. But we, um, we support and resource. And also increasingly, we're doing a lot more where we're going direct to Christians and churches mm. to strengthen their muscles for what they're yeah. facing. I, I guess though, in, in asking for individual memberships, is this not where, is this not, does this not answer the question of why you haven't sometimes by your own admission been more forthright on certain issues? Because actually, if you've got a lot of different diverse members who all call themselves evangelical, it then makes your job a lot harder, doesn't it, to speak out on the big issues and say, this is the evangelical position, because you know you've got a huge membership of people who might disagree with you. It, it makes the voice more measured, no doubt about that. There's no doubt when I speak on platforms here, people listen. And um, so, so you have to be measured in that. But it also makes when we do speak up, it makes the voice so much louder and so much more authentic. So you can speak up from one position and people, well, well, who are you speaking on behalf of? We speak on the whole. And let's be honest, when you've got a, and we have got a range in EA, you, um, you're always going to upset someone. And it's making sure you're just making sure that what you're saying 
is representative enough of what we are. We also, we've got lots of, we've got a theological advisory group, we've got a council, we've, we're very accountable to lots of people and we're 173 years old. Mm. So there come moments as well where, where we, we aren't always early adopters of everything because sure. you've been around a long time. Yeah. I want to talk very briefly about your predecessor, Steve Clifford, yeah. who sat in that chair, oh, good couple years ago now and did a very similar interview with us. And um, you've said, and many others have said that Steve's Part of Steve's legacy is how he was able to bring in um, those from black majority mm. churches, mm. Um, from e different ethnic backgrounds mm. who didn't feel a part of the EA mm. and how he's managed to bring mm. them in. And there's been a lot of reconciliation and a wonderful kind of unity movement there. I'm not saying that's the only thing that Steve's done, but that's, that's, yeah. that's how, at least in part, he will be remembered. Mm. What are you hoping will be your legacy? Yeah, that's good. Firstly, I would want to affirm what Steve's done with the BAME church has been amazing. And we're going to build on that. You know, and I've said at my commissioning last week, we've done well, ethnic diversity, but what about a Polish church? What about a Romanian church? We're going to build on that. We've started a journey that's going to continue. I hope my legacy would be around confidence in the gospel. I'd like to think the Evangelical Alliance would be braver and kinder. And I'd like to think that lots more people have come to know Jesus through what we're doing. But more than anything, I would like Jesus to be famous, not the EA. Mm. I think that sense of confidence and passion, as you said, it, it comes across in, mm. in who you are. Do you ever have moments, though, when you doubt the whole thing? <laughs> That's a really great question. Um, I had a long process before becoming a, a Christian. I grew up around the Christian mafia, like I said. Got banned from church when I was 14 for consistent bad behaviour. Um, I, I took a long time to get here. But since coming in, no, I've, I don't have I don't have doubts about the existence of Jesus. I've seen too much. I've seen legs grow. I've seen people get out of wheelchairs. I've seen people miraculously come to faith. I mean, I don't I don't have doubts about Jesus mm. and about my faith. I have mm. doubts about myself, mm. about my own capabilities, and also the evil one gets involved. Often, when you're about to do a gospel appeal, you get in your ear that little voice. What if this isn't true? Mm. You get rid of that voice and you crack on. But but doubts around my actual faith, no. Mm. Doubts around my own giftedness and abilities yes and i just find myself relentlessly pursuing jesus because without that none of it works do you think in, in taking on this new role that does give you a greater platform greater influence do you think um there is a sense in which spiritual opposition will grow as well oh yeah of course of course the target on my back has quadrupled in just three days oh no doubt about it i mean you felt that already oh yeah massively and even the day of my first interview now i don't see a demon in everything so let's make that clear but the day of my first interview 10 minutes before the interview my wife pulls over in the car and she rings me after my interview to say um, by the way you have to come to hospital on the way back so i've got appendicitis right we're in the hospital till one in the morning she stays for a couple of nights they say you're a 40 year old woman you don't get appendicitis that's young people or old people how on earth have you got this and i'm thinking i think i know <laughs> now stuff goes on when i was growing up we used to get letters in blood through the front door to my dad you know I, this this is hard mm. i've hidden on my social media you can't find out the town i live in i'll say london mm. i want my children to be 18 because i feel a sense of challenge there but you know what god never promised it'd be easy he promised to be with us mm. i think a lot of people don't know that or don't see that though understandably right they, they don't hear about the struggles that christian leaders go through because they see them on platforms and they see them writing books and they see them doing the interviews and I think some people think this is quite quite a nice job, isn't yeah. it? You know, you get to you know have a nice sit down <laughs> interview with the media, and you get to you know be someone who can put out press releases and reach thousands of people. They don't see the tough side, and and I guess for yourself, you've grown up in a kind of ministry family, and you, like you said, you saw that firsthand in your, in your dad. And so, I, is it is it fair to say you've gone into all this with your eyes wide open, having seen perhaps some of the struggles that people even in your own family might have gone through in previous years? Yeah, that and also um, a, t a really difficult journey my wife and I went through to have kids um, where I was told I couldn't have children. And then we 
had two miraculously. We, we lost one as well. But our son had nine blood transfusions in the womb, was born 10 weeks early. I mean, it's horrendous. Went through all, until I, I was told I couldn't have children. My biggest weakness was probably an unawareness of any weaknesses. And then you start ministering out of brokenness. So I think you minister out of brokenness and then the, the, the impact's different. Mm. So I definitely walk with a limp. People might not think it. They can make, people make all kinds of perceptions of you from a distance, but I walk with a limp. And I remember being told I couldn't have kids and two days later, a 14 year old in our youth group said she was pregnant. You know, yeah. th those journeys are difficult. Mm. I then add to that the attack that I saw in my family growing up when my dad was head of EA. And I'm, I'm not afraid, but I'm a little daunted, I think. Mm. Mm. How did you cope in those two years where uh, you weren't, you know, having you weren't able to get pregnant, you weren't able to start a family. Mm. What toll did that take on you, and and how did you get through that? Was yeah. faith a help? Was faith a hindrance? Because you're thinking, hang on, mm. why isn't God coming through mm. for us? I never understand why people give up on faith when life's hard. Because if I if life's hard and Jesus isn't real, I've just lost twice. So if I'm honest, I clung on to Jesus. There was these blood transfusions in the womb, which by the way, hardly anyone has, and my wife had them from 18 weeks. Um, I would sit by my wife's bed. She'd have a blood transfusion, and she'd have to sleep for four hours until they would scan her. And if the baby moves, you fight another day, otherwise the baby dies. 5% chance of survival. And I'd sat by her bed and I prayed out loud each time, Lord, if this baby lives, you're good. Mm. And if this baby dies, you're still good. Either way, somehow I'm gonna get up tomorrow and say you're good. I did that to remind myself as much as anything. Mm. But it was those moments, where is Jesus when you're suffering? He's holding your hand. Mm. And, I, and, I, and I just lent into him. Is revival on the way? That's the million dollar question. I ask that all the time. I, I wholeheartedly believe that in my lifetime, we're going to see a major move of God in the United Kingdom that's going to transform the United Kingdom inside out, upside down and back to front. Why? Well, let me finish. The only, other, the only other option I have is I'm going to die tomorrow believing it was coming today. Okay. The reason I believe that is because I believe in a God who can move mountains. The church is growing faster right now than at any time since Jesus was resurrected. It just might not be happening here. We are part of a global family. There's no section for British people in heaven. So right now the church is growing faster in the world than ever before. Today it will grow faster than it did yesterday. Therefore I have hope in that same Jesus that he will transform the United Kingdom. If he doesn't, then we will keep praying for it and we will keep petitioning. Also, there's more coordinated prayer going on for the lost in the UK right now than in living memory. We're, we're being thrown, all kinds of things are falling apart around us. These secular ideologies don't work. The ground is ripe for harvest. If it doesn't happen, we'll keep trying. But I believe it will happen. Do you think that sense of, that sense of optimism that you have, how much of it is is a kind of God-given gift of faith and how much of it is a, I don't know, family background where you were raised personality thing? <laughs> well, my family aren't all optimistic. That's for sure. You see me and my dad at a football match together, you'll realise there's Eeyore and there's the one who thinks they're going to win every week. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's, some of it is personality, yeah. but some of it is also muscle memory. I mean, I've had the absolute privilege of seeing so many people come to faith. I've seen people get healed. I've seen all kinds of things. If, if out of that, you don't, have muscle memory of God doing great things that makes you hopeful. I also think church is often full of pessimists. What other group mm. in the UK produces research on themselves, gives it a negative title, then does a press conference to tell the secular media how badly we're doing? It makes no sense. <laughs> we need to start being more hopeful, living with a hopeful script, because the grave is empty and Jesus is alive. Mm. What's the practical thing you'd encourage people to do to be more hopeful as Christians? Where, how can they... How can they stop being a kind of uh, stereotypical British stiff upper lip, um, sort of crossing our arms, wagging our fingers, sort of saying, oh, it's all going terribly. What are the practical things we can do yeah. to re reignite a sense of yeah. optimism? Look global. 
because the church is exploding. Fastest growing church in the world is in Iran or even on our doorstep, the world's coming to us. My friend, Pastor Agu, who runs the RCCG, invited me to speak at a prayer meeting. In my head, that's 15 people in a cold room. It turns out it's the Excel Arena. There's 40,000 mm. people. I'm one of 10 white people. You're speaking that they're praying from 9 p.m. till 5 a.m. for the re-evangelization of the United Kingdom. Look global. There are mm. stories out there. God is moving. Get hopeful. The kind of things that happened in the Acts Church are happening in Iran and in China. And we're part of that same family. Mm. I think also start relentlessly pursuing Jesus and asking him to make us hopeful because the gospel is a message of hope and we're sometimes getting pulled down by some of the negativity around us. We need to get our heads up. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, as it said, look full in his wonderful face. Mm. The things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You're someone who's on the front line preaching the gospel, seeing people saved. Share a story from someone recently who's become a Christian that you've heard that you've been involved in that encouraged you. Okay. It's not a recent preaching, but it's a recent outcome. I went and preached at church. I used to preach in Young Offenders Institutes all the time at Youth for Christ. It was brilliant because it made you feel like you're good at your job because the lads got an hour out of their cell if they came to chapel. If they responded, they got 15 minutes more. So they all responded every time you went in. <laughs> and I was preaching at a church recently and this mum came up to me and said, thank you so much. She said, thank you so much. I said, oh, it's such a pleasure to be with you. It was great. She said, oh no, not for this morning. That was bang average. She said, thank you for 10 years ago when you preached in a Young Offenders Institute and my lad gave his life to Jesus. And she said, my lad now is back on the chaplaincy team in that same Young Offenders Institute, okay. leading young people to Jesus. That's what we do. Mm. The gospel leads to, to one person sharing with one person who then shares with more and shares with more and shares with more. That story keeps you awake at night. We haven't had time to talk about some of your background in, in YFC. You're at the Evangelical Alliance now, as I said, that's a, a huge step for you. Do you ever have a five-year plan or a 10-year plan? What, how long do you think you can do this job? Is there a kind of time limit on it? Um, it's, an, it's an old person's job, so I better wait till I'm an old person before I stop it. I think being Are realistic. Are you the youngest? Uh, uh, no, my dad's is slightly younger, right. but, but the membership was much smaller, as right. I tell him. But, <laughs> but I think going for, being realistic, this is at least a 10-year job. Yeah. This is, a, this is a, something you have to get your head down. We need to weather some of the secular tsunami, the choppy waters ahead of us. We need to be realistic, and, and, and we need stickability in the EA. Mm. So I, I, no one does it for less than a decade, so I'm imagining it's at least that. Well, you're three days in to a 10-year job. We wish you all the best. Thank you very much for coming in. Thank you so much. God bless you. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. I'm Sam Hales. That was my interview with the brand new CEO of the Evangelical Alliance, Gavin Calver. If you're listening to this on the podcast, you can also check out my interview with Steve Clifford, the past director of the Evangelical Alliance. It's there to listen to in our archive. And if you're listening to this on Premier Christian Radio and you'd like to access past episodes, why not download the profile as a podcast? Just go to premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back same time, same place next week with another great interview for you. Have a great rest of your weekend.